Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Dubners by Dubners. We've reached the final story in the collection, The Dead. As always, we'll have the story linked in the description, and if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you might be listening. For this story, we're actually going to approach it a little bit differently than we have up to this point. The Dead is, unlike the previous stories, it's more of a novella than a short story. And so in order for us to be able to cover it in the in the depth it deserves, we're going to cover it in two separate episodes and we're also not going to focus on a single theme so we won't have a thematic discussion at the start of this episode because the story is really a a culmination of all the themes we've talked about up to this point you have discussions of life and death of women and men and how they interact with each other of the effect of england on ireland and the effect of drinking in irish culture you have elements of epiphany, so in terms of how Joyce structures the story, but also in terms of the experiences the characters have. You have class politics, you have influences from Joyce's own life. All of these things we've discussed in the episodes up till now, in the thematic discussions and in the discussions of the stories themselves. So if you have been following along, you'll hopefully have the context. If not, we'll try and signpost as best we can where you can listen more about these particular themes in our previous episodes. And with all that said then, let's jump straight into the plot summary. And Lachlan, you can maybe kick us off there. Thanks for that, John. So, The Dead is very much a Christmas story. It's set sometime after Christmas Day in the weeks that follow, possibly on or around the 6th of January, which is the day of the Epiphany. Obviously, given the significance of epiphanies to the collection as a whole, it's very likely it was this day. The plot follows a party hosted by the Morgan sisters, aunts to Gabriel Conroy. We follow the trajectory of the party, starting with the guest's arrival being greeted by the caretaker's daughter, Lily, who acts as a maid to the two aunts. Across this then, we're treated to various different vignettes or scenes as different characters arrive to the house. We see various interactions between the characters over the course of the party, with music being played, dances being danced, and various characters having different conversations, sometimes humorous, sometimes more serious. Following this then, we have an interaction between our main character, if we can call him that, Gabriel Conroy, and a woman, Molly Ivers. There's further songs and dances. Finally, the food is laid out. Gabriel acts as the head of the family and carves the goose, and there's various discussions around the table there. Finally, as people are preparing to leave and the evening is winding to a close, another one of the guests, Mr. Bartle Darcy, sings a song, The Lass of Ockram, and this seems to have a significant impact on Gabriel Conroy's wife, Greta. Following the dinner, Greta and Gabriel retire to a hotel in Dublin where they're staying for the evening and during this then there's huge revelations about the nature of Greta and Gabriel's relationship, the history that Greta has kept within herself and finally we conclude with visions and contemplations of of Gabriel on his life and the significance of his wife and her previous lovers. I don't know, John, is that a fair summary of the story or anything else you want to add? I think you've hit the main points there. It's a hard one to summarise because it's a bit longer than the other stories and there's a lot going on, but hopefully we can puzzle that all out through the episode. One of the first things I would like to talk about is the fact that we do have this shifting perspective in, in the narrative. So as you mentioned, at the end, we're focused very narrowly in on, on Gabriel, but 
on the way there we meet a whole bunch of different characters and the narrator seems to float around a little bit between them so we start with Lily the caretaker's daughter who is is uh, acting as the maid for the Mrs. Morkins and then move gradually around the party before we eventually focus in on Gabriel and and my my read on this was that we have an inversion of the previous story where we in Grace where we moved from specifically focused on Mr. Kernan to a more general focus of the Catholic Church and and the priest whereas in this story we move from a more general focus around the the party to being very narrowly focused in on Gabriel but I, I, I think you had, a, you had another take on, on how the, the narration progresses through this story right Lachlan? Yeah one thought that I had on how the narration or the focus of narration plays out across the story is that we start with Lily who is this young female character of very much of the the lower classes she's working explicitly as a maid or as, a, as a, an assistant to as you say the Morgan sisters we move from her, we generally focus then, or the narration tends to focus after that point, on Freddie Mallins and Mr. Brown, two of the guests at the party who are slightly more upper class. From there then, we look at an interaction between Gabriel Conroy and Molly Ivers, but really I think the focus here is on Molly Ivers rather than on Gabriel specifically, and it's only then really after that point that the narration shifts and focuses more on Gabriel Conroy and it's, it's, it's only at this stage that we, we finally zero in on Gabriel and his interactions with people and I wonder is there a degree of movement through the classes as we see kind of starting with the lower classes as we move both upward to the higher social statuses within the house as well as to a physically higher place within the house and tellingly I think the story concludes in a Dublin hotel where again Greta and Gabriel are at the higher level having been brought there by a caretaker and elevated up so I do wonder is Joyce playing with the idea of physical level and social class simultaneously in the narrative focus of this story. Yeah, it's an interesting point and maybe we'll get to reflect more on that as we move through the discussion. As you said, the start of the story, we're focused in on, on Lily and the ants that are hosting the party. To maybe briefly characterise the ants then, so there's the two ants, Julia and Kate Morkin, and then their niece, Mary Jane. And there's a sense that they are, I would say, caught in time, or they're living in an older age. They are hosting this party for everyone, and they're, they're, they're quite advanced in years. The two ants have never married, and when we think of the title of the dead, there's a sense that maybe these, these ants are approaching death. In particular, later in the story, we see Gabriel reflecting on the likelihood that one of the ants might die in the near future. But I think they're interesting characters. I have a little more to say in them, but I wanted to get your take on the ants themselves and maybe Mary Jane as well. What do you make of them as, as characters, Lachlan? Yeah, certainly, John. I think similar to what we've talked about and the characters that we've seen throughout the collection, these are characters that seem to be paralysed slightly or definitely trapped within and heavily associated with Joyce's vision of a decaying Dublin, a slightly older, trapped, unable to move forward, a little bit like the Mrs. Carney figure from A Mother, where they're slightly out of time. This is really brought to the fore, I think, with the discussion around galoshes. I think it's Miss Julia Morgan doesn't know what galoshes are, and Kate, her sister, says, do you, do you not know? They're, um, they're some kind of boots, I think, indicating that neither of them actually know what, what galoshes are, and Kate being the younger one believes she should know, but equally is ultimately unaware of what they are. And that really qualifies, I suppose, their 
disconnection from the wider world and, and their inability to understand what's happening in, in the modernist day and, and, and move forward with the times. Yeah, if you've seen the documentary The Beals of Grey Gardens about mother and daughter living in a decaying house, there's definitely echoes of that sort of environment. But I think we're maybe a little bit too dismissive of them. This party does seem to be largely a success. People enjoy their time there and it seems to be a joyous occasion for all. But definitely they're not particularly contemporary. They're, they're definitely more harkening back to an older age and they're a little bit reluctant to adjust to the, the newer age. On the Galoshes story, you, you mentioned this happens after Gabriel and Greta arrive. Before we get to Gabriel's interaction with his aunt, when Gabriel and Greta arrive, uh, they they part ways. Gabriel goes downstairs while his wife Greta departs with the aunts. And here we see Gabriel and Lily interacting. And I think you have some interesting perspectives on Lily as a character, right, Lachlan? Yeah, I think Lily is actually a really interesting character. She's not in the story for a huge amount of time, but the small interactions that we have with her, are, I, th- I think, are very interesting and, and very joicy. And if I can if I can use that expression, so. First of all, her name is in fact the first word of the story and lilies, as you may or may not know, are the flowers most commonly associated with funerals, at least here in the the, the kind of Western world. And I think the name Lily as well is associated with the Virgin Mary. So right off the mark, there is a huge amount of religious imagery associated with this girl. Following that then, there's an interesting interaction with Gabriel asking her about her school she says oh no I'm, I'm i'm finished with school and so gabriel says i suppose we'll be going to your wedding one of these fine days with your young man a eh? the girl glanced back at him over her shoulder and said with great bitterness the men that is now is only all palaver and what they can get out of you and i think this expression and this interaction can be considered in the context of the story two galants where you have these men today looking to get something out of women and not forming these kind of long-term relationships and this shifting in cultural and social values that you've had over the this kind of turn of the century period and I think a little bit later on we actually have a a comment from one of the sisters about something has changed in the demeanor of Lily in the last few weeks and heavily implied that this is the the event Lily is referring back to here so this is our first real introduction to Gabriel as well, and, and, and we see that he's not able to handle this interaction with Lily well with her curt response to him and her clear dissatisfaction with men and with what modern Dublin has created. He becomes incredibly flustered and panicky. He just hands a gold coin to her. Again, symbolically, I think Joyce is referencing back to the story of two gallants and the uh, closing image there of the, the gold coin in Lenin's hand. Yeah, that interaction really is the first real perspective we get on Gabriel's, I would say, insecurity, but also the way he interacts with women. So the first thing he notices is that Lily mispronounces his surname. So instead of Conroy, she says Conroy. And and Gabriel just smiles inwardly, a little bit patronizingly. He, does, he doesn't bother to correct her. He is just uh, silent. And even in his dialogue with her, with this, uh, oh, are you, do you still go to school? He's kind of infantilizing her here. So obviously she has grown up and he's seen her when, when she was younger. And there's a sense here that he continues to treat her as a child, but... Her response takes him aback as a result. That particular response then, the, the men that is now is only all palaver and what they can get out of you. It also brings another theme into this story, which is this idea of, of the past and this nostalgia for the past. And this idea that somehow things have gotten worse or, or are not as good as they used to be. 
Also, when we think it's men of the past are better than the men of the present, we have a premonition of maybe what's going to happen much, much later in the story where we have a comparison maybe between Gabriel himself and, and a past lover of, of Greta's. So, so there's a lot going on in this, but I think the main thing you really get out of this is, as you said, Gabriel's inability to, when social interactions don't go along the lines he expects, he is unable to deal with it and he resorts back to this gold coin, which if you remember, as you said, our discussion on two gallants, often coins in Joyce are symbolic of the British rule in Ireland. So a coin typically would be printed with a, an image of the king and so it's quite symbolic of British rule, British control of Ireland and, and, and how Britain and Ireland are, are interlinked. And so Gabriel resorting back to this is a little bit him resorting back to his class. He's not able to engage with Lily directly as two human beings having a conversation. And when the conversation doesn't go his way, he says, well, this is, you know, one aspect in which I can control things a little bit because I am on in a higher class than you. So it's a super interesting interaction. And it, it also tees up a lot of how we see Gabriel interacting with, with women in particular throughout the rest of the story. In the Galoshes story, the Galoshes would have been a relatively new thing, sort of a continental thing. And so there's a, a kind of a conflict there between the older aunts who are purely used to Irish culture versus Gabriel who has a more continental kind of upper class outlook and, and how that makes him not so easily able to interact. But so at this point we have we have Gabriel has arrived. We've seen him interacting with, with a few different people and now we see some other characters start to arrive. Okay, do you want to fill us in on those? Thanks, John. So at this stage, then, we, we have the arrival of another character, Freddie Malins. So I think this had been slightly foreshadowed by the two aunts in their concern that Freddie Malins would turn up drunk. They send Gabriel down to check whether or not he is drunk and to, to take care of him in the event that he is. And as he arrives, it is very clear to Gabriel, based on the laugh he can hear coming from Freddie Malins, that he is, in fact, quite drunk. So... Freddie Mellons arrives with another man, Mr. Brown, and these two characters are relatively minor, but I think probably present two alternative visions or two considerations or thoughts that Joyce has on Dublin and the issues that he has with Dubliners as a whole. Freddie Mellons, he's arrived quite drunk. He's famously drunk. His mother has asked him to take the pledge at, at Christmas time. So as we said, stories set probably a week or two after Christmas and already he's broken the pledge we've talked about the idea of sobriety and the issue of alcoholism within ireland as, as, as a concern and i think in addition to this then we have mr brown so i'm not sure if it's as early as this in the story but certainly later on it's confirmed to us that mr brown is a protestant individual obviously the name brown should indicate that to the people reading it so we don't really focus on Freddie balance as much as mr brown initially so at this point, we have Mr. Brown entertaining three young ladies as they're waiting for the music that's currently playing to, to finish and treating themselves to a few drinks. And we have a few different conversations coming out of Mr. Brown, all of which seem to be slightly off color and a little bit seedy or insidious. And it's clear that he's making the young women slightly uncomfortable. Yeah, Mr. Brown is is an interesting character, particularly as a sort of a, a foil or a contrast with Gabriel. So Gabriel is very internal or he has a lot of deliberation about the things he says and about how he can interact with people, whereas Mr. Brown seems to act much more on, on impulse. Also, both characters 
try to occupy similar roles in the story. So Gabriel has been asked by his aunts to coordinate things. So he's asked to coordinate Freddie Malins here and later he's asked to give a speech. Mr. Brown almost tries to usurp that role and that he starts to act at times in the story a little bit more like a host. He also takes a role in addressing Freddie Malins. So very interesting to compare him in particular to Gabriel. So while Gabriel is deeply taken aback by Lily's rejoinder earlier in the story about men are only all palaver, Mr. Brown here is offending the younger women in the party but seems to not be bothered all that much by it when he's ignored or or disregarded by them. He continues the story addressing it now to the men rather than the women. So interesting as a foil to uh, to, to Gabriel and then also interesting when we think that Mr. Brown is, is perhaps symbolic of, of Protestantism within the country. Yeah, certainly there is a connection there between Gabriel and Mr. Brown and as you say, interesting that Mr. Brown is explicitly presented as a, a Protestant character who is less than savoury shall we say whereas Gabriel is presented as this very positive knightly almost or chivalric character solving all the problems and taking the role as head of the family or head of the table as the the most senior male individual but by the same token and as we'll as we'll discuss slightly later on has a number of negative interactions or has a number of negative connotations associated with him as a result of his West British status or his hollowed out Irishness and you know, I might be jumping a little bit ahead there. Before that, we have a, a brief interaction between Freddie Mallins and Mr. Brown, in fact. So if I read out the quote here, because it's quite entertaining. And so, now then, Teddy, I'm going to fill you out a good glass of lemonade just to book you up. Freddie Mallins, who is nearing the climax of the story, waves the offer aside impatiently. But Mr. Brown, having first called Freddie Mallins' attention to a disarray in his dress, filled out and handed him a glass of lemonade. Freddie Mallon's left hand accepted the glass mechanically, his right being engaged in the mechanical readjustment of his dress. Mr. Brown, whose face was once more wrinkling with mirth, poured out for himself a glass of whiskey. Freddie Mallon's exploded before he had well reached the climax of the story. In a kink of high-pitched, bronchitic laughter and setting down his untasted and overflowing glass, began to rub the knuckles of his left fist back and forwards into his left eye, repeating words of his last phrase as well as his fit of laughter would allow him. So, this is really the concluding image we have of Freddie Mallins here before he's leaving the party and again it's really to call attention to a complete disarray or, or breakdown in his personality and his personhood he's verbally rejecting the uh, the lemonade but mechanically accepting it he's fixing his zipper is what's heavily implied to have been the disarray in his dress here and Mr. Brown is simply just sitting there staring at him as, as this happens and Freddie Mallins is, is, is trapped paralytically, just laughing to himself, repeating the last words of his phrase. And this echoes a little bit the figure of the priest in the first story, The Sisters, where he's, he's just kind of sitting in the chapel, laughing to himself, holding the broken chalice. And this idea of a complete destruction of an individual as a result of sickness or alcoholism and ultimately heavily implied to be simply the symptoms or the result of living in Dublin for too long and being trapped within the city of Dublin. Absolutely, there's a sense of, of that paralysis of Dublin there. And I think it's even more so when we when we take into context the fact that the ants were already worried about Freddie showing up drunk. So there's a sense of repetition that this is something Freddie has done at previous years when the ants have thrown this party and, and now he's doing it again. So there's this paralysis, this repetition, this idea that things don't change, that Dublin forces you into this recurrent uh, patterns of behaviour. That 
the section then that you've you've just read out that concludes uh, basically the first section in the story so we haven't mentioned up till now but the story is divided into three parts we're going to cover the first part and part of the second part here in our, our first episode and then we'll, we'll conclude in the second episode but at this point we have a break so we might say that this is when the party truly starts so everyone has arrived and we've been introduced to all the characters and now we get to see them them interacting we get to see them dancing and playing music and we get to see them reflecting on each other and their relationships so the party kicks off in earnest and the first thing we see is mary jane the niece of the aunts is playing a, a piece on the piano and the piece is interesting. It's not a particularly listenable piece. It seems to be more of a technical piece. So a difficult piece to play, but not something that is particularly appealing to listeners. This is Gabriel's reflection on the piece. He, he says that the piece she was playing had no melody for him, and he doubted whether it had any melody for the other listeners, though they had begged Mary Jane to play something. It reinforces this idea of paralysis or this idea of going through certain difficult motions even though they're not bringing perhaps joy maybe we can see parallels with the overall party here in that mary jane is performing this thing that is difficult and requires concentration and effort but the end result is maybe not something that's all that good do you have any reflections on this piece Lachlan? i don't think we're ever informed what the name of the piece is and i do wonder if Gabriel's rejection of it is more an indication of his inability to understand the arts and an indication of some of the shallowness or the hollowness of some of his assertions about himself rather than a a commentary on the piece itself. Now, that said, I will qualify that statement. There is, again, a very clever little toying with it where at the beginning of the piece, Julius notes that four young men who had come in from the refreshment room to stand at the doorway at the sound of the piano had gone away quietly in couples after a few minutes. And then later on, we're told, as the characters are clapping at the end of the piece, it's the four young men who had disappeared have just returned for its, its conclusion. And the most vigorous clapping came from the four young men at the doorway who had gone away to the refreshment room at the beginning of the piece, but had come back when the piano had stopped. So two interpretations there. Either Gabriel is not as comfortable or as artistic as he would like to express himself, or he is able to astutely read the room and interpret what is going on. And there's an implication that, again, Mary Jane is maybe more closely aligned with her aunts in that she lacks social understanding or the ability to know what her audience are truly looking for yeah i think i would lean a little bit more to the second reading there based on the description of of the men who walk away but definitely gabriel's insecurities are on display through this story and so i think that's also a valid interpretation there uh during this passage gabriel is irritated by the music and he starts to look around the room and so there's a, a few different pictures hanging around the house that his eyes fall upon one is a picture of Romeo and Juliet that Aunt Julia has made while she was a little girl. So again, contributing to this sense of stagnation, the fact that the the picture on the wall is something that has been there since she was a little girl. And also this balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet that's depicted is uh, sort of an interesting foreshadowing of a scene we'll get right at the end of the story between Greta and one of her former lovers. The other picture that's displayed is of two nephews in the Tower of London, so two nephews of Richard III. 
This relates to this story. The two nephews disappeared in mysterious circumstances while under the care of their uncle, later King Richard III. It was heavily discussed at the time that perhaps Richard III murdered the, the two nephews so that he could ascend to the throne in their place. Interesting picture to show in the story. So you have here themes of usurpation that come up. So someone taking someone else's place. And I think that echoes throughout the story. And you also have this idea of, of British royalty. Do you have any thoughts on the picture, Lachlan? Nothing specific, to be honest. I had much more focused on the uh, Romeo and Juliet scene than I had on the picture of the two princes. But certainly, as you say, it echoes some of the themes within the story. And as we've often said, whenever... Joyce includes a piece of artistic work from another genre or from somebody else that that generally is in a strong indication that he has a, a specific purpose or intent in, in mind. So I think following this then we are given a brief introduction or a brief consideration of Gabriel's mother Ellen who is obviously the sister of Kate and Julia and we get the sense from this very brief segment that she was a larger-than-life character, again echoing Mrs. Carney from A Mother, it's the story itself. There's a book with photographs that Gabriel is looking at and he sees his brother Constantine, who is uh, now the senior curate in in Balbriggan, and the exact quote is, thanks to her, Constantine was now senior curate in Balbriggan, and thanks to her, Gabriel himself had taken his degree in the Royal University. A shadow passed over his face as he remembered her sullen opposition to his marriage. So there's, again, in a very short few sentences, Joyce is giving us a huge insight into Gabriel's character. He came from a good family, had a very dogged and determined mother who was able to position one of her children as a man of the cloth, a senior religious figure, and then similarly himself, Gabriel, ensured that he got a good professional university-level education and also then had a strong or keen interest in his personal life and was opposed to his uh, to his marriage and tease up slightly there a tension between Greta and Gabriel. Greta is from Galway, from the west of the country, and he's very much an Irish individual, similar to a lot of scholars will point to say very very likely a, a cipher or a, a an insert for Nora Barnacle, Joyce's real life wife and partner. Yeah, it's definitely a strong biographical readings of this story particularly Richard Ammon Joyce's most famous biographer outlines the parallels I think the next sentence after the paragraph you read out is also interesting speaking again of Gabriel's mother that some slighting phrases she had used still rankled in his memory she had once spoken of Greta as being country cute and that was not true of Greta at all it was Greta who had nursed her during all her last long illness in their house at Monkstown so it's interesting, first of all, this idea that Gabriel is perhaps marrying down in terms of class, that his mother is, as you mentioned, quite an ambitious woman, ambitious for her children at least, and this phrase of being country cute indicates that she thinks Greta is in some way taking advantage of Gabriel's naivety, that she thinks Greta is more manipulative than she is letting on, whereas this doesn't seem to be the case. but. This still lives in Gabriel's mind and as you mentioned there's this opposition between Dublin and and the west of Ireland and we see, I think particularly in the next scene, this aversion of Gabriel to the west which at the time was for many Irish revivalists seen as being more quintessentially Irish than say Dublin itself. 
Definitely. And I think we've we've danced around it long enough. Let's uh, let's dive into the scene with Molly Ivers. This is probably one of my favourite scenes, certainly in this story and possibly in the collection. I think Molly Ivers is a, a fascinating character. She's initially described... She was a frank-mannered, talkative young lady with a freckled face and prominent brown eyes. She did not wear a low-cut bodice, and the large brooch which was fixed in the front of her collar bore on it an Irish device and motto. So, right away, we're given this very strong description, if I can use that word. I think the fact that she's not wearing a low-cut bodice is highlighting her rejection of a lot of the characterization we've seen of women up till now in Dubliners where she's not relying on her physicality she's not relying on her beauty she's not relying on her femininity to force her way in the world she is more than capable of addressing and dealing with men on their level and engaging as an equal intellectual yeah she's definitely a contrast some of the preceding characters we've seen I think historically or at least from Joyce's perspective as well there was a connection between the Irish revival movement so the Irish cultural revival and a degree of chastity so you see it there in this quote that she had did not have a local bodice but she also wore this this brooch with an Irish device on it this was something that was sometimes embraced by the the Irish revivalists this idea of a pure Irish culture perhaps coming out here of course a culture that Gabriel himself finds difficult to deal with or to account for. He is challenged by Miss Ivers over some reviews he's been writing in secret. So he's been writing under a pseudonym or, or perhaps just an abbreviated version of his name, GC, for a paper called The Daily Express that is more unionist in sympathies. That is to say, it's more favourable to the British establishment and their, their rule in Ireland. And so Molly Ivers confronts him over this and describes him as a West Brit, or West Britain in this case, which is a disparaging term for someone from Ireland who is more culturally leaning towards Britain and maintaining the British ascendancy in Ireland. So it's it's interesting that you have then West Britain and the West of Ireland as these oppositional places, one being emblematic of British rule and then the other being emblematic of a sense of pure Irishness. Indeed. We see Molly Ivers pulling up Gabriel over his engagement with the Daily Express. And I think it's telling, and I think Joyce may be having a go at the Irish nationalist movement, that while a lot of what Molly Ivers says is done in jest, I think, or meant to be lightly teasing, simply the act of writing for what's considered to be a unionist newspaper is enough to attribute that kind of attitude to Gabriel Conroy. His verbal response is interesting in that it's very distinct from the internal monologue or the, the internal machinations that we see of him. The quote is, It was true that he wrote a literary column every Wednesday in the Daily Express, for which he was paid 15 shillings, but that did not make him a West Britain surely. The books he received for review were almost more welcome than the paltry check. So... There is a statement here that really Gabriel is more interested in the artistic pursuit and the passion that he gets from this art than from the significance or the meaning of the monetary value or the associations that result from writing for the Daily Express as opposed to a more nationalistic newspaper. Following on from that statement slightly later on, he says, he did not know how to meet her charge. He wanted to say that literature was above politics. But they were friends of many years standing and their careers had been parallel, first at university, then as teachers. He could not risk a grandiose phrase with her. 
He continued blinking his eyes and trying to smile and murmured lamely that he saw nothing political in writing reviews of books. That's a really interesting quote. I think particularly this idea that their careers have been parallel. Molly Ivers has gone to a different university to Gabriel himself. But I think what he finds particularly difficult is that he can't fall back on this idea of class or the idea of status that he can't use grandiose phrases with her, that she... Uh, it's his intellectual equal and therefore he finds her particularly difficult to engage with yes it's interesting I think you, you mentioned already and, and I think we're, we're seeing it again here there's a patronizing nature to Gabriel's interactions with some of the women around him and this one I think echoes that again so this conversation which seems to be disturbing Gabriel a bit but which Molly Ivers Miss Ivers largely seems to be jesting with him it also shows his inability to be mocked even in jest that he needs to be taken seriously. And so their conversation continues in the next sections where, again, bringing up this, this nationalist team, Molly suggests that he should visit Galway or visit the west of Ireland in Connacht. But Gabriel rejects that idea of going there on a holiday, saying that he prefers normally to go to France or Belgium or perhaps Germany. Again, showing this perspective of, of where they're focused, Gabriel being focused on the continent and Miss Ivers, Molly Ivers being focused on, on Ireland itself. There's two ways you can read this section. One is, uh, first of all, that, yes, it seems a bit silly to suggest that if you choose to holiday somewhere other than Ireland, you're not displaying enough nationalist sympathies. So, yeah, there's a hint of mocking of the nationalist movement there. There's also, I think, a sense of Gabriel's elitism there, that he doesn't like Ireland. I think he sees himself as above it, and he doesn't like to be associated with it. Oh, definitely. There's quite a few quotes here that touch on that point you have a dissociation i suppose by gabriel or an attempt to dissociate himself from ireland so as part of the invite molly extends to gabriel she notes it'd be splendid for greta too if she could come she's from connacht isn't she and gabriel responds her people are so there's this attempt to dissociate or the idea that greta is no longer from galway but that her people are that she is from this group of people but that she herself is placeless or identityless and then later on as the the verbal sparring continues between molly ivers you have and haven't you your own land to visit continued miss ivers that you know nothing of your own people and your own country oh to tell you the truth retorted gabriel suddenly i'm sick of my own country sick of it why asked miss ivers gabriel did not answer for his retort had heated him this goes on and gabriel just cannot give an answer to Miss Ivers and the last quote that we have in this interaction at least is um, then just as the chain was about to start again she stood on tiptoe and whispered into his ear West Britain we have no more reported dialogue the next section just starts when the Lancers were over Gabriel went away to a remote corner of the room so the final word is this challenge from Molly Ivers to Gabriel that he's a, a West Briton that he has failed to recognize his role within Ireland or that he doesn't have a place within Ireland or that he himself is unaware of, of what Ireland is and what Ireland represents and there's a real threat to him there that he can't respond to. Yeah it's almost a flirtatious thing so while she's dancing with him she presses her hand into his and, and they seem to be getting along well and it's it's just when they're parting that, that she whispers this word or these two words West Britain in his ear so there's flirtatiousness there and definitely a, a playfulness which is interesting because in previous stories, the Irish nationalists or the Irish revivalists are largely disparaged by Joyce for their sense of self-seriousness, whereas here 
there's a more playfulness and I think some critics have suggested that this story in particular reflects a, a sort of change in Joyce's attitude toward Ireland and Irishness but yeah it's an interesting one and as you said we end up afterwards with, with Gabriel moving away and, uh, and talking to Freddie Mallon's mother who's a woman who now lives in Glasgow and Gabriel doesn't really listen to her she talks about her life there and Gabriel is, is only half listening he's still upset about this phrase and that's all he can really focus on and then again then afterwards his wife Greta comes over and, and she wants to know what was the discussion with with Miss Ivers all about he again rejects this idea of going to Connacht Greta says that she would love to go oh do go Gabriel she cried I'd love to see Galway again and then Gabriel's response is simply you can go if you like so very petulant not particularly friendly response to his wife especially in a public setting no absolutely not it's certainly a strong indication of his character and his nature he's very excited about this dinner he's keen to make this a positive experience and he wants to have a good time with Greta and wants to have a nice interaction a nice evening with her and he seems to be very upset by this accusation or this implication that he's a, a West Briton. And this phrase or this expression comes up a time and again as he, he constantly thinks about this. And we can see this rattling in his mind in the back of his head as he works through his speech for the dinner. Yes, his speech for the dinner. Well, first of all, he dreams of escape from the party. So after this, he's feeling a little upset and he looks out the window and he looks out at the park and the snow and the Wellington Monument. He imagines it in his head, the Wellington Monument in Phoenix Park. So Wellington being a symbol of British rule, again, he is pining towards some sort of British rule there, but also thinking of the outside, and in particular the snow. I think the snow is a particularly strong image that appears throughout the story. I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to the end of the next episode, but here again we see Gabriel longing to be outside amongst the snow and it's a suggestion perhaps here that there is a desire for isolation a desire for uh, an aloneness but stemming again from this inability to interact with people so Gabriel I feel that we've been a little bit harsh on him as in our discussions through the story in general he does seem like a decent sort but he's unable to interact with people easily in a, in a social setting and saying that, we see some of the most petty or vindictive parts of Gabriel's character as he reflects on the speech. And he wants to now adjust the speech to get back at Miss Ivers. The way he decides to accomplish this is to praise his aunts, who he doesn't particularly respect. He describes as ignorant old women, but he wants to praise them and their generation and criticise the younger generation who are more educated but lacks some of what he sees as the virtue of the elder generations particularly their hospitality yeah joyce is teeing up or framing the unionist versus nationalist debate here in, in this interaction and we're given the presentation of a young energetic woman who has her own mind and has her own opinions versus a slightly older man who's a bit more staid and a bit out of touch with society around him and certainly with the women around him and where Joyce's sympathies lies is always up for debate but certainly I think with a more modern reading of it it lies with Molly Ivers and with the nationalist movement and especially the line what did he care that his aunts were only two old ignorant women is particularly biting indictment of both his aunts and by extension then of Gabriel and his his opinions on them. Yeah it's interesting because it's immediately followed by a scene where we see 
perhaps and Julia's biggest triumph of the party which is she's asked to sing and although and Julia again is the elder of the aunts and she appears at times a little unaware of, of what's going on and unable to follow things she doesn't know what galoshes are and she doesn't pretend to know what they are either when she's set to sing her voice seems to transcend her age so her song is described in the following terms her voice strong and clear in tone attacked with great spirit the runs which embellish the air and though she sang very rapidly she did not miss even the smallest of grace notes to follow the voice without looking at the singer's face was to feel and share the excitement of swift and secure flight gabriel applauded loudly with all the others at the close of the song and loud applause was borne in from the invisible supper table so it seems that in this case there is something to Aunt Julia. It's immediately following this description by Gabriel of two ignorant old women, which perhaps in some aspects they are not as knowledgeable about life as Gabriel, but in his description he is dismissing the talents they do have, and that is highlighted here by the reception of Aunt Julia's song. Yeah, definitely there is an undercutting, I suppose, of Gabriel's interpretation of the world. It's telling how quickly that comes on the heels of Gabriel's considerations on Honest Ants and on Molly Ivers and the role of women. So there's definitely a, a tension throughout this story, and probably more so than in, in some of the other stories, of the power, for want of a better expression, between men and women and the power dynamics and their relative interactions with one another. Yeah, not just in terms of gender, but I think in terms of their age, Gabriel has almost dismissed them already. They are already the dead to him. And it's only much later in the story when he has to face some revelations about Greta that he then starts to rethink about some of the other characters in the story as well. Two other reactions we get to the song are from Freddie Malins, who is effusive, a little uh, too effusive in his praise, claims it's the best singing he's ever heard. And then Mr. Brown, who Again, playing the role of the host of the party, says to everyone, uh, Miss Julia Morkin, my latest discovery. And so both characters are continuing to play the roles we've seen up to this point. Freddie playing the drunk and Mr. Brown playing the potential usurper to Gabriel in terms of the host of the party. One last reaction we have then to the singing is from Aunt Kate and she is indignant at the fact that despite Julia's wonderful voice she's no longer able to sing in the choir and this is as a result of a rule laid down by Pope Pius X who said that choirs should now be consisted of all male members that women should no longer be allowed to participate in church choirs and this is hotly contested by Aunt Kate while other party goers other guests at the party and particular Mary Jane attempt to placate her a little bit. Yeah, the change would have been brought out pretty shortly after the ascension of Pope Pius X, which happened in, I believe, August of 1903. The story is believed to have been set in January of 1904. So this is a very new change to them. And I think the quote is, I know all about the honour of God, Mary Jane, but I think it's not at all honourable for the Pope to turn out the women out of the choirs that have slaved there all their lives and put little whippersnappers of boys over their heads. I suppose it is for the good of the Church if the Pope does it, but it's not just Mary Jane, and it's not right. And what we have here is a really interesting, again, Joyce highlighting the issues with the Church, and I suppose the challenges that can exist where a new pope can come into place and 
fundamentally change rules that have been in place. And we've had these conversations in Grace in the previous story about the fallibility or infallibility of the Pope and the ability of the Pope to make a decision. And Aunt Kate turns around and says, oh, I don't question the Pope's being right. I'm only a stupid old woman and I wouldn't presume to do such a thing. But there's such a thing as common everyday politeness and gratitude. And if I were in Julia's place, I'd tell that Father Healy straight up to his face. And she gets cut off here by Mary Jane again. But there's certainly a challenge or a question mark there over the role of the church and the ability of women specifically, their role in society to challenge the church. And the deference given to the church is questionable and questioned. Absolutely. There's this sense that challenges to the church start to arise but before they can be fully interrogated, before the logical conclusion of people's arguments can be brought to their full ends, that the fact it is the church is just brought out. It's the church, you can't challenge it, or he's the Pope, you can't challenge him. So I think here it leads to a kind of a ridiculous statement where she's both saying, oh, I'm not saying that I know better than the Pope, but I'm saying it's not just. So people end up getting all tied up in their logic because of this inability to challenge the church. The issues around the infallibility of the Pope is really brought to the fore and and rather than having characters simply state that fact Joyce presents the challenges that individuals have in attempting to hold these diametrically opposed ideas or concepts within their head, their deference to the Pope and their, their deference to religion with what they understand to be what is just and what is right ultimately the core principles of Christianity and Catholicism specifically. As throughout all of Dubliners, this conflict with religion is really highlighted here. We've one last scene then before we're going to break for this episode, and it's it's a relatively short one. It's the departure of Gabriel's main antagonist. So Miss Ivers is, disappears before the dinner itself can kick off. In her departure, as we've seen up to this point, she seems like a generally playful, independent woman. She's pressed upon to stay, but she sticks to her guns and as she's leaving, she just cries out, Bannock live, which is an Irish greeting or an Irish expression of goodbye. And she laughs and runs down the stairs, leaving behind Gabriel to mope and to plan his speech and come back with how he's going to get back at her. Thanks for that, John. This is really it then in terms of the first part of the story. I think that this is a nice natural breaking point. I think we can probably give you a couple of high level thoughts on the story, but we'll have a, a, a deeper analysis in our second part. But I suppose for me, at least... Up to this point, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. As I said, I quite enjoyed the scene with with Molly Ivers, and I I really like Molly Ivers' character. I think she's very interesting. And at this stage, we have a very passing understanding of Gabriel Conroy and his interactions with his wife or his relationship with his wife. It's probably not painting him in the best light, um, and I think we'll get more of an insight into him in the next part. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to draw too many general conclusions about the story at the moment. This is one of the stories we'll see with a big epiphany at the end. I think this theme of West Ireland versus West Britain is really strong for me. And this first half of the story is really, a lot of it for me centers around this conflict between Gabriel and Miss Ivers and Gabriel's, again, his inability to converse with her and his inability to converse with other people in the party. He's a character that's very much trapped in himself and also trapped in some of the traditions or the stations of his class. Definitely. He is a paralysed individual. But we can both agree on that, to be sure. So, if you want to find out how things proceed for Gabriel and whether he manages to overcome his paralysis, whether his speech at dinner is a success and how things will resolve between him and his wife, we hope you'll join us for the next episode. 
And with that, I have been John Feather. I've been Locking Coin. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah.